0: Hey guys and girls, welcome to the podcast. Today we are taking you into and under the jungles of the Yucatan Peninsula, specifically just south of Cancun near Tulum. Imagine trekking for hours or days into the heat of the Mexican jungle, passing on the way artifacts of the Mayan civilization, avoiding venomous snakes and frogs, and then finding and setting up camp near to what may look like a cave, but may look like a swamp with a little body of water in the middle. Imagine then jumping into that body of water on your own with rebreather scuba gear and exploring some of the most ornate and beautiful unexplored caves in the world. And imagine doing that again day after day for months on end, exploring a new part of that vast network of underwater underground cave system every day and then painstakingly taking note of your movements after each long dive to slowly make a detailed map. My guest today is genuinely one of the most prolific and accomplished explorers of our modern times. Originally from Germany, Robbie has lived in southern Mexico for over 20 years and has dedicated his adult life to diving, mapping and exploring the vast network of cenotes, which are water-filled underground caves that span thousands of kilometers under the Yucatan Peninsula. Thus far, he has discovered over 500 kilometers of uncharted caves. He is also responsible for connecting the Sac-Actun and Dos Ojos cave systems, which created the longest water-filled cave system in the world. He's recognized as one of the National Geographic's Adventurers of the Year and is an active member of the New York Explorers Club. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for my new friend, Robbie Schmittner. (laughs)
1: lockdown? Yeah, sure. A little bored. I would like to go out and go exploring, go diving, but what can you do? <laughs> it's all yeah, well,
0: uh, We're lucky then. We get to benefit and have a, have a conversation with you today then, that's, which is great. I know that in Mexico, I think it's Obrador um, has been very lax about this COVID situation, or at least he was up until a week ago. Is that still the case or has it become more stringent?
1: It's a little more strigid. I mean, a lot of people go out on the streets still and act like there would nothing be happening, but access to cenotes or out in the, even to like any other all public places where people could gather, that's all locked down.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, here in the UK, it's absolutely very strict lockdown and nobody's leaving the house. So, uh, but uh, we're not, um, you know, we're not in Mexico, so we're not missing the the, the <laughs> beautiful natural beauty that you get to enjoy. Um, once again, thanks so much for doing this with us today. Um, it's really exciting to have you uh, here on the podcast. Um, it, it's clear that you're one of the foremost modern day explorers, one of the most important explorers of our time, I, I would say. Um, I really want to get that across to people, sort of what you actually do and not only from the importance of the, sort of, archaeological and anthropological perspective, but also in terms of the excitement of the actual, the lifestyle that you lead. So, could you start by just telling us what you what you do, please, Robbie?
1: Well, I am an underwater cave explorer. I'm living here in the peninsula, Yucatan, and I go into those cenotes, which are the entrances to the cave systems. And I'm searching for new passageway, and I'm searching since years now for connections, interconnections of different big cave systems, which are already there. And I'm pretty successful on that. I find cave, and I was able to found the biggest underwater cave in the world. There's only one cave bigger. It's a dry cave in Kentucky in the States. But within the next connection, I want to do two different cave systems. Um, it will grow bigger than even that cave in Kentucky.
0: Wow, that's incredible. So I think you're you're actually talking, the two caves that you're talking about that you connected, I believe they are the Sac Actun and the Dos Ojos caves, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Um, so tell us a bit about that. How did you first sort of discover these caves? Um, and they're called, uh, just for clarity, they're called Kenotes. Is, would, I, would that be the correct term? Cenotes. 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 Yeah. And the notice is actually the sinkhole that you go into these massive cave systems, or is it the whole cave system? No, the cenote is the entrance. Uh, that word is from Mayan language. It's
1: called sonot and it means freshwater well. That's where the Mayans got all their water from. And
0: we use that now to dive into these amazing cave systems. And so, just so people understand, I mean, how did you, you this, these are massive areas. So, we're talking hundreds of kilometers these two cave systems. So you, you described how the one in Kentucky is a little bit bigger, but these two cave systems on their own, each one is something like 200 kilometers in that sort of region. And you've mapped and explored this entire area. Um, tell us how that, how that transpired, how you, how you first
1: well, started this and-, and When and- I got here in 98, there was already a lot of explorers working here. Um, the first and the second generation of explorers which came to this area and at this time there was a number of about three to four hundred kilometers of cave known by by that time divided in different systems and um, Exploration kept growing and growing and even the connection in between the Sacactún and Dos Ojos cave system people did already look for that in 98 and couldn't find it now me being here starting working looking up to these big explorers and looking at them and say oh i want to be explorer myself Uh, i started diving into these caves looking diving all these lines which been installed and in some places i got to places where the line ended but obviously the cave kept going so i did my first steps running a line putting a line into this cave and finding new passages and I thought wow it's possible I could be an explorer and I kept going and going it became a passion and I was finding more and more a cave and then I thought wow there's caves sitting next to each other and they're clearly like pearls on a string they're sitting there the water Running through them is all from northwest to southeast in each system. So there must be somehow connected. One cave needs to feed the other cave with water. So I started looking for connections and mainly got to places where people got to restricted areas and first and second generation cave explorers in this area used to use equipment, equipment configuration with double tanks on them on their back, which makes the profile of the diver which is really, really big. So we changed that. We started to use side mount configuration where the tanks are connected to your sites. On each side, you have one tank, makes you much smaller. Plus, if the cave becomes smaller, you can take a tank off and push it in front of you, or even both tanks. So it was that, past restrictions where the first divers had stopped and on the other side of the restriction the cave just kept going and i pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and started making one connection after the other so in 98 when i started to connect or start to work on the sakak cave system it wasn't even a huge system it was a minor one it was 17 kilometers at the time but then seeing that all these other caves are close by, I started connecting one system to the other and and the next one and the next one. And by a cave connection, always the bigger cave system gobbles up the smaller one. So the smaller one loses its name and it's all recognized or known as the the big, the name of the bigger system. So Sakak Toon cave system just started growing and growing and growing. And at some point, it was just right next to to the Dos Ojos cave system and had reached a length of, if I'm not wrong, around 188 kilometers at that time, 185, something like that. And so it was sitting next to the Dos Ojos cave system, which at that time was the third biggest water-filled cave in the world with 88 kilometers. And... We start searching, looking where could that connection be and pushed it, pushed it, pushed it. And we got very, very close at some point. Um, Together with a colleague from London, actually, Steve Bogart, we were very, very close in 2008. We were so close to connect these two caves that on our maps, it was just missing a meter and a half. Now, that could be actually a little more because of, of errors in our survey or GPS, um, setting off by GPS a little bit. But as we were so close, we thought, let's do a dive. You come from the Dozoho side, I go in at the Sakak tomb side, and we timed the dive so we would be at the place of connection, of possible connection at the same time. And we see If we could see maybe your light, I can see your light through a crack because we carry these powerful dive lights, right? To see something in there. If I can see a glimpse of your light or sediment, which we steered up and carried carried by the current over to the other side. And we couldn't see anything, nothing. Uh, But I could hear Steve on the other side of the wall. He was opening his, his way with his tang a little bit, because it was very restricted cave, and I could hear this bang, 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 bang. So we were very, very close, but it was still 10 more years to pass by till that
0: connection actually got done. Wow, okay. And can so, I just to clarify, Robbie's just so people listen, you're doing a lot of this by yourself, solo. I mean, you're obviously working with, with this, the gentleman you mentioned, but... A lot of times you're going down there by yourself? Usually we go by ourselves or I go by myself.
1: Um, It's actually the way I prefer to do cave exploration because especially when it comes to small places, the second diver is not a help, it's actually a hazard for me. We're crawling into these very very small places in scuba gear and trying to surge away, trying to pass through a restricted area, going to the other side, finding another bigger passage on the other side of this restriction. But often this restriction does not open up again. It just pinches off, it gets smaller, it gets not passable. So now you're stuck with two tanks in front of you and your gear and can't move to the side of of forward anymore. So you have to get back, you have to go back out and that one is often not very easy. You wiggle, waggle your way backwards out of this restricted area. And what is really, really making it all way more difficult and way more stressful is actually when you do this, your, your visibility at the dive goes to absolutely zero. So you do this all blind. You do this all by feeling because the sediment, which is on the, on the cave floor, gets steered up by your
0: movements. And... Usually makes the whole thing milk. No, so you're in an incredibly tight space, deep underground, underwater, um, possibly unable to turn around with big equipment all on you. The sense for many people, I mean, I can feel my hands getting sweaty just thinking it's (laughs) one of those, you know, it's and the silt is coming up, so and it may be. Not that it matters, but you're by your well, it does matter that you're by yourself because you don't have anyone to if something does go awry, you don't have help. Uh, I was gonna say not that it matters, but it's it, I know that you often go in the nighttime as well. so you so you're down in the middle and and to just set further the the context for people who are who are not aware. As I understand it, you also are often trekking through the jungle to reach these locations and these sinkholes. So you're going through uncharted jungle with, Scorpions, all the wildlife and snakes and everything else, monkeys, and then going potentially in the nighttime by yourself into a very tight space that's never been dis- uh, explored before. <laughs> and then going into these situations where you're tight to your body with no visibility. So, just to, just so, because you talk about it in a very nonchalant way, I want to make sure everyone, anyone who's listening, is aware of how obviously not for you dangerous, but how um, unique this situation is. But, but go ahead, so tell me, so you were talking about you were stuck between the two. The, the, eight, the well, Welcome to my
1: world there. That's yeah. where I feel home, <laughs> right? <laughs> but um, yeah, it doesn't matter. You said you go there by nighttime. That doesn't matter. But it's, As soon as you descend into this cave, it's completely darkness anyway. Um, so that's why I sometimes go in darkness and it doesn't really matter, you know. Um, but to come back to that point, being stuck in a small area and have no visibility whatsoever, can't move sidewards, not forwards, need to go back out. That's where it can be dangerous when you have another person behind you also stuck behind you, blocking the way back, the only way back. And as we have no more visibility, there's no more communication possible other than touch contact and squeeze me twice, I'm good. But that doesn't help really well in these situations. So it is actually way better to be by yourself at this situation. And the most important is to know when it's enough for the day. We go to, to our limits basically on every of these types. Every time we search into a really restricted area, um, trying to find connections, which had not been done yet, it's usually because it was too small for somebody to pass through. Um, We go to our personal limits. I go to my personal limits and you have to listen to that little voice, which says, enough, go home, (laughs) come back another day. And that is actually what is, really really important to be able to do
0: this kind of activity for years and years and keep going doing it. Because I noticed as well, you, you mentioned at the beginning about when you first started and uh, there were already some cave uh, exploration having been done to a limited extent. I, I know that there were, these, there were lines but the lines, so they attach lines, and I'm sure you've done this thousands of, over thousands of, uh, hundreds if not thousands of kilometers. These lines, you then follow them. So someone else who's not explored or not ex- experienced, they can follow the line. The line looks very thin, though, when I've seen it. So it looks like if, you, so imagine you're going in and it's almost like you're leaving these breadcrumbs, these lines. What happens if that, has that line ever been cut on a, on a rock? It looks so easy for that to happen. Well,
1: those lines are really thin. That's true, but they're extremely strong. It's nylon line. We use nylon because it stays in good shape for a long time underwater, even. And we don't have gravity in there. It's not like in rock climbing where you hang over a rope. You know that line is just there to give you basically a visual reference to find your way back out. And if you If you have a bad visibility situation, so you can't see it, the water got milky, got got murky, then you put your hand on it and follow it back out. So it's not for it to pull along, it's not to hang on it. So that line is really resistant. But it did happen that that line got cut before um, in situations where people get entangled into it. Do not correctly they don't re- react correctly and stop and think and act they start fighting the situation start panicking then that line can absolutely break can be ripped off also during my explorations where i start my dives in caves which have been maybe explored in 1980 That line is 40 years old, and yeah, it's not that strong anymore. It has been happening that it broke or it ripped apart, but the good thing is it only breaks on one spot. Then you come to the next Tion station, so it's it's never.
0: Sorry, Robbie, you froze there for a second. Hang on. Hopefully, we're going to get you back. One second. <laughs> Sorry, Robbie. There we, go. There, there, there we go. Okay. So I think you were saying before it it froze that. Um, okay. Hopefully, we're okay now. It. Uh, you can go back to the point where you left off. I guess the other question that I'd that I would make is, and but, but sometimes you're going by yourself, so you're exploring it for the first time. You're you're t- tying the cable on. Um, that's when it's more, more frightening, I guess, because maybe that tie-on before is not there. No, it's more exciting. <laughs> it's
1: <laughs> like going in there and nobody had seen what you see right now. It's like floating or gliding into this other world. It's like down there, it's like, it's like a fantasy world. It's like science fiction or going to another planet. And the, the caves here are so, so, so so different variations it's like you go into one cave it looks like you're on the moon and you go into the other cave and that's what you imagine venus to be like or mars it's crazy and that's one of the most the coolest things here it's like what to do oh i'm bored oh let's go to a place nobody had seen before you ever no and then you glide into this it's just exciting exciting
0: exciting <laughs> And were you, is this something you dreamt about when you were a boy? Because obviously all of us have that. I think it's almost a primal human thing to explore and to find new worlds and to discover new environments. And it, which kind of brings me back to sort of part of what I was going to ask you about in terms of the, the fact that there aren't many places left on, on the planet Earth where, where real, true exploration can happen. And um, there's sort of the bottom of the deepest oceans, of course. Um, and then the, the frontier that you're operating in. I mean, obviously, the next one's going to be space, but that's prob- we're not quite at a, the stage you know, where we can have, go to other planets. So at the moment, the most, ex- you know, you're really at the forefront and one of the, p- the pioneers for this vast, vast area, which is incredible. I'm just wondering, was that something you dreamt about as well as a child? Or was this, how did you get, get into this?
1: Actually, not. Um, I've never been a person which made a lot of plans or worked out. Oh, this is my goal. I want to go there. Usually, things came to me. <laughs> I never wanted to be in Mexico. I never wanted to be a cave in, cave diving instructor, or diving instructor whatsoever. Um, things just happened, and it was it was that way that the diving instructor I was following in Germany who taught me about open water sports diving. He was married to a Mexican woman. He moved to Mexico. They opened their dive shop. He said, oh, you need to come and see this. I came over to the cave class with him, a cave diving class, and I just fell in love with it. And I just went like, oh wow, this is amazing. And I was completely hooked with this environment, um, which was very, very little known in 98 or 96 when I did that course. So. Going back home, I had I just couldn't stop thinking about this caves. I and mean, two years later, I said, "Okay, I want to be I want to stay there for a little bit longer." So I came over for like half a year, took a break of my work at a, as a lumberjack in Germany, and um, after half a year being here and starting exploring already at that time, I said, "No way, I can go back home and cut trees down again. No way, no way." So I called my boss, said, hey, boss, give my job to somebody else. I stay at least another half a year. So I did, and then another half a year passed by. And um, even more exploration was going on. I like, I can't go now. I can't leave. Then I called back home again. I called my mom and said, hey, mom, I'm sorry. I can't come back now. And I'm going to stay for a while. I don't know. There's so many caves I have to explore here. I can't leave right now. So, 20, 22 years later, <laughs> I have even more cave to explore right now than, um, than before. You know? well, right now, there's 1,596 kilometers known.
0: And I did my share. I did a couple of hundred kilometers of those. And uh, as I understand it, there are, th- there are potentially thousands more kilometers yet to be explored. Is that correct? Well, that's the good thing. Nobody knows.
1: We're doing real exploration. We do something nobody knows, and it's funny because when I came here, I talked to some of the cracks. And you know, they "Like, hey, you, know, you do this exploring, and what do you think? Is there more to do?" And they said, "Oh yeah, yeah. I think seventy, eighty percent of what is known is found. Yeah, what is not known is found." So said, me, as the rookie, is that how can you give a percentage of somebody something you don't know? And it's just funny, just not long ago, like maybe three, four months ago, I talked to somebody else and he said, oh, you know what? I think 70 to 80% are found and known. (laughs) I have to laugh and say, no way, no way. There's way more. And actually doing this exploration I'm doing, starting just as a hobby, becoming a passion, Um, but also now seeing it got bigger and bigger. At the beginning, it was just going out there, having fun, finding cave, doing what I love to do. But as things growing, um, this becomes more and more important. By now, I was able to do the biggest water-filled cave in the world. And I got recognition by Mexican government for that, um, by the world press, by diving associations, speleology associations. And what I've seen in this area was what limited exploration most was actually mindset of the explorers by themselves. They were saying, oh, no, this is not possible. The cave can't go from here to there. No, no, no. All caves run straight towards the sea. Well, we found out they don't. They run also parallel to the sea and they connect to each other. And it becomes a bigger and bigger picture. And it becomes actually very, very important. And my my new goal, my new work right now is finding the Holbosch Fracture. I was like, what is that? <laughs> no, There is a fracture zone called the Holbosch Fracture, which runs uh, across the whole peninsula from the tip of it, like by Cancun city. And it goes all the way down to Belize city, which is the neighbor country. So looking onto that, this Holbosch Fracture makes them more and more important, um, part of this whole exploration. One one thing it does, it separates where we have horizontal cave passages, this maze of cave passages, and on the other side of the whole brush fracture there is none. There's no horizontal cave. There's a lot of these entrances, the cenotes, but they all go into like deep wells. They're like classic sinkholes. But also, Looking at that, um, looking at the Holbush Fracture being a line which separates cave and non-cave area, it also seems to be a water-bearing cave itself, the Holbush Fracture. That means there must be a cave running from Cancun to Belize. And if that is correct, we don't know anything yet. We know maybe 2% if I go that way and do percentage on what is known also seems to be that this whole bush fracture not only is a huge cave, which is sitting there waiting to be discovered, but it also is the reason why we have all these caves here. All these caves which have been found, the 1,500 kilometers, which will be multiplied, if my theory is correct. Um, Why these caves are there? Because they're sitting there on the Caribbean side, on the side which is close, which is on the north, sorry, on the eastern, northeastern side of the, of the, of this fracture zone. And from there to what's the Caribbean side, it's only like a very skinny, very skinny land strip. So if there is border running through this fracture zone with pressure, which it does because I can feel the the current inside this cave passage. If it does that, there's pressure inside this system and that pressure tries to go out sideways and on the Caribbean side it can because it's only the very skinny land strip. So it's able to push that pressure through cracks, through little holes, seeping through the limestone forming all these different caves, which are here, this river delta of caves just on the ground. So this might explain, actually, the whole aquifer of the peninsula, and it goes into scientific work. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a geologist, hydrologist, anything. I'm just going out there and discover things, look at things, use a bit of common sense. But I take this. Two scientists, and I'm working with scientists, and the big picture makes more and more sense as we keep going exploring and
0: doing science. It's incre- it's absolutely amazing. Every aspect of it is 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 fantastic, really. Because on the on the one hand, you were saying you're not a scientist, but it, a lot of people listening will probably say well that's because you get to do the really exciting stuff you know the scientists okay of course what they're doing is also incredibly important and, and, and challenging is it's absolutely essential of course it is but um they're in the office in the you know big like beehive type with this with the computer in front of them you're the one doing the really cool camping uh going through the jungle diving down you're obviously collecting all the data which they uh you know can then m- make more sense of and i'm sure you don't give yourself enough credit about the science aspect either, but I know which job I would prefer to do, you know, the, ex- the exciting work that you do. And the, the other thing that's fantastic about it is not, not only that you've avoided that lumberjack job or that job back in, in Frankfurt or w- w- back in Germany, you also um, have what appears to be life work. I mean, if you're right about your theory about this um, fracture, and in terms of the amount of undiscovered caves uh, that that can be studied it's 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 really great that you will have this challenge that's never ending by the sound of it um, in terms of the um, because let's look the, there there are also the other facets to the whole work that you're doing which is kind of the more anthropological um, aspect and even paleontology with the there's been a A mastodon discovered I don't know whether that was yourself that was involved with that but they found some kind of and a mastodon is a as far as I'm aware is a is like a woolly mammoth or pre wooly mammoth elephant type creature that's right
1: um actually it's not mastodon it that's where the where the scientists or eggheads like I like to call them always like go crazy it's not a mastodon that has no mastodons been found in the Yucatan Peninsula Um, they, what it actually is, is a gomphitor, And that is an elephant-related or a, a animal of the elephant family. Yes, it was walking with the um, woolly mammoth and the mastodons. And at the same time, it was during last ice age. Um I, myself, found nine of them. Wow. In different areas. And, for example the giant sloths, I stopped counting. (laughs) I don't know how many there there are all over the place. And it's very, very common. Almost every dive we find some um, archaeology, paleontology, um, almost every dive, no? Incredible. It's nice to find them. It's like, wow. And he's like, wow, what is that? And you imagine how it must have been 10 to 15,000 years ago, when that animal or even humans walked into this cave. so these caves, and you say, like, why did they do that? Why did they walk into the dark cave? Now I can only get that far here because I have three lights with me and I, I have dive equipment. How did these animals get in here or humans? And it probably means that they had the need to do that. The only source of water on the peninsula is actually the cenotes or I have to say the freshwater source. And rainwater does seep into the ground right away as soon as it hits the floor. Here, there's a very porous limestone. Now, the caves have been dry, that is a it's proof too, because there's all these stalactites and stalagmites inside the cave tons of it, and they can only grow when there is a dry environment, a drop, a water drop going through the ceiling, evaporating under the ceiling, building a stalactite from the ceiling. And it must have been thousands and thousands of years of dry cave systems because the caves are decorated like crazy. And in that time, the groundwater level had to be deeper. That means all the water the fresh water, to be able to access the fresh water, you had to walk into these caves. So if there was maybe times of, of like really dry times, it didn't, it didn't rain for weeks, months, couple of months, which is common in this area, people and animals were forced to go into these caves to get to the water, to get to the fresh water, which is crucial to survive, right? So. People walking in there, animals walking in there for the need of water into complete darkness and into a landscape which is easy to fall down a hole, a crack, break your leg. That's why we find so many so many animals and humans in those caves from Ice Age. And there's actually um, around, 10, 15 human skeletons be found in, in these caves from last ice age that date, that, date back 10 to 13, 14,000 years. No. And wow. finding something like that yeah. is really cool, <laughs> that
0: I can say. Well, yeah, I was, g- I was thinking you couldn't get much more kind of scary than being stuck in a tight space with silt up there in the middle of the night in an unexplored cave by yourself. But then you come across a skeleton. From, you know, it's like, <laughs> that's the only thing that could make it scary. <laughs> <hysteria. laughs>
1: yeah, get, it gets, all- gets you some goosebumps when you find that stuff. But it's not scary. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. When you see a skeleton laying out there, and you know it must be 10,000 years already that it's laying there and you're the first one laying
0: your eyes on it. It's just, wow. Amazing. That's, that is absolutely amazing. And do you find artifacts with the with those bodies or is that all decayed? It's just a skeleton. It's just a skeleton because it was ice age in this area
1: here. And so there, there was no metals known yet or anything like that. So if they had wooden sticks or maybe torches or whatever they had, that all... That well, didn't survive the long time and they uh, just went away. You no. Know? Um, what we do find also is stuff from Mayan, Mayan times, like the when the, the Mayan kin- kingdom was up and they were ruling the area here. Um, but these things, which is usually pottery and also bones, and a little bit of jade or, or obsidian if we find stuff like that, it's usually very, very close to the entrance because when the Mayans were ruling, the caves were already flooded. So whatever was given to the water, given to the gods, they believe, which are living down there, or just simply fell in, had to go through the surface of the cenote and it's
0: deposited right down close by the entrance somewhere. And do you have to get permission, special permission, because uh, I I believe that... um, the Mayan, as you said, the, the, these entrances were special Mayan holy sites. Do you have to get special permission? Are there anyone from the Mayan civilization or the Mexican locals, the indigenous ancestors who are sensitive to that now? Or is that not an issue? Um, yes
1: and no. Um... I mean, coming here and just walking out in the jungle, find a hole, crawl into it, go exploring, making maps. In Europe that wouldn't be possible. <laughs> so there's all these regulations. Um, you cannot do this, you can you have to get permits. And here, and especially way back in like the beginning of two thousands,
0: it was just wild,
1: wild west. It's like you just went, you walked go somewhere if somebody complained you ask for forgiveness and it is kind of that still but there is more and more regulations coming up um landowners for example don't like to have the gringos anymore on their properties and sniffing around looking looking for cenotes one reason of that is government Makes regulations for their property. If there, if there is cave been found, they say, okay, you can't build here, right? Or building cost you way more. <laughs> that's the that's the more likely part. So people landowners would try to avoid that. Other things are uh, there have been accidents. Usually not during exploration. Um, it's more people which come here doing cave diving as a sport, as a hobby, and go in there to do these caves. Um, often it's people which think, "Okay, I'm the big silverback cave diver. I nothing can harm me." Well ends up in an accident. If that is happening, the government here um, puts regulations or or, um, usually how's it called when you you find, they'll be fined. Landowners be fined for people dying under their ground. It's like it doesn't make a lot of sense but it's happening that way. So people don't want to have these gringos go into their caves anymore. So it's getting more and more difficult to get access like that um also government is going on directly to explorers saying hey where are your maps you're doing this work here where's your maps like here they are (laughs) or people they're like oh no i don't have any Well, well then you better stop diving um or finding these artifacts is also a part where government is really really interested in mm-hmm. and caused trouble in the past because people get like people didn't want to show what they had found which is not the right way to do um, government got angry and started suing people and there was some some little dramas going on <laughs> in the past but um Luckily, I got—I think I got that part figured out—and recognized by the institution of um, history and ant- anthropology in Mexico. We're working hand in hand with these people, and that is why I'm be able to keep going
0: exploring. Well, I guess it's yeah—it's kind of an Indiana Jones type feeling, that, you know. You get about it—you know—you're going down into these caves, you're getting um, these amazing artifacts, pottery or whatever it is. I I suppose there are a few different elements at work there. One of which is probably that maybe they're super valuable. And the other one is the government probably wants to keep them as part of the culture and put them in a museum. And there's also probably a fear that, as you were saying before, if you get the big silverback guy or the guy who maybe doesn't have the experience he thinks he does, he's not going to take care of it. So maybe it's damage to these, to these, some of these um, things, which are, part of the the country's history so i guess you have all that to deal with yeah and i try to stay away from it so usually when
1: i find something right now and it's like oh there's a, there's some a bones i look the other way <laughs> because I'm, I'm tired of this stuff and we could do a whole nother session of podcast if we want to go to that topic um there was people like telling they are from the government, they went to the diving community, said, hey, we are representing the government. We are um, archaeologists working for INA, which is the institution of of uh, history and anthropology. And they were fake. They were completely fake. No they just said, oh, yeah, we, we, we do this and you have to report what you ever found. And then we found out they were completely fake. But when, they, when we found out, they had taken away nine human skeletons of Ice Age, taken oh. them out and used them just for their own purposes. They were like acting with everybody that they were out, the authority. They were uh, scientists, archaeologists, and they were not. They made it on the the cover of the National Geographic magazine doing that. I was like really surprised. They got a a Rolex award, a lot of money for for that, for their work, and they were all fake. So it was a a really, really bad story when it comes to archaeology in these caves, a bad history. We try to change that now, but um, yeah, as I said, that's a topic we could do a whole other session.
0: (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that, well, that's, that's what I'm saying. There's so many fascinating elements to this, the whole, the, your whole um, situation out there, not least of which, which we haven't really talked about as much, is just the sheer beauty of the place. So you've got beautiful beaches, you've got beautiful climate, you've got beautiful jungle. The be- and anyone who's, who's listening to this and curious, please check out Robbie's Instagram or check out online about this area and the caves. It's absolutely mesmerizing to look at the colors and the the natural beauty. And I think there's a lot, there's a reasonable amount of wildlife as well under there. I, I was thinking that, that that there would be so still the water under there that there wouldn't be much wildlife. But in fact, because it's connected to the sea and the different sinkhole openings, you get quite a lot of fish. Is that correct? Um,
1: almost. It's like, depending where you go diving. Um, if you add cenotes, which are close by the sea, and they can be right at, shore Mm. There, there you do have a lot of different animals also going into these caves you have lobsters in there you have um big tarpons which go into the into the caves even in completely darkness it's amazing but also more inland um the cenotes itself there's a lot of wildlife all jungle animals, depending on on the cenotes, they go there and drink. So you see animals at the surface: um, deer, um, whatever, deer, picaris, snakes, whatever is here, and even jaguars. I've been only lucky to to have that happen once. I've been exploring, going through a cave for like. kilometer or something and then i popped up in another cenote in the middle of the jungle which was unknown and as i'm looking up there's this huge cat laying on the side in the darkness and his eyes reflected my dive light and i said holy what's that and as 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 i'm looking at it it stands up and walks towards me and i just froze it was like i couldn't move anymore and there was a full and grown jaguar just stopping right in front of me where I was standing inside the water and it was just standing on land maybe three meters away from me, looking at me at the same eye level. And as I just came out of the water, not smelling a human because it was just submerged completely and I'm wrapped in neoprene, I think the cat didn't realize what's in front of me. It. it just stand there looking at me. And starting then we're like walking up and down the water edge like a Jaguar would do in in the Sioux how people know it, they walk around up and down, up and down, just there was no bars in between. (laughs) It was like, oh my god, oh my god. I just, by that time it was completely frozen. I couldn't, I couldn't at all move anymore. And then the last thing I thought was I have to blend it with my dive light as my last, (laughs) (laughs) my last, my shield, you know. And at some point the Jaguar stopped again and then it went like down and I said, Oh my God, it wants to jump. It wants to jump. So I tried to get away and I couldn't because I was stuck in the mud up to my waist. So, but I did put my light down and the Jaguar was standing straight up again. And I put the light up again and it went back down again. And I said, Oh my God, that animal only, he wanted to, look what's behind that light. It's just like going up and down. And then I carefully lowered my light and then Jagger just looked at me, started walking up and down again. And by then he must have got the sense of me, a smell because I was sweating like a pig. <laughs> 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 and by then he started like getting a little more like nervous, you could tell. And then it walked off, walked behind a big boulder Looked one more time over the border. Oh, yeah, that wet thing is still there. And then it disappeared into the jungle. And then I looked at my computer and it gave me 10 minutes surface interval. So it was 10 minutes with that animal there. And it was like, oh, my God. Oh my God. <laughs> that was oh. one of the most
0: intense situations I had been exploring these caves here. That is absolutely incredible. Wow. Okay. Um, and was that, that was in the night? Or was that in the when you so you surfaced in the middle of this 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 sinkhole at the top of the sink. was it was it the nighttime or the daytime when you came up that was daytime that was daytime and were, were you, how much space was there could it have pounced on you if it wanted oh easily it was one little chump it was like 3 meters max because i know that you sometimes camp for weeks on end in the jungle i know i, I, I saw you in the steve backshall program um, which is fantastic on BBC2 and other people may have seen that as well. If if you have or have not, I would encourage you to check that out. But um, you were camping, I believe, in the middle of jungle for a very long, at least a few weeks, is that correct? Um, the
1: longest jungle camp I did was around one month, four weeks out in the jungle and it was amazing. I love it. as There's no internet and you're just out in the jungle. There's no bad news coming to you. It's just you in the jungle. You have a compressor, which means you can fill your tank. You can go exploring, finding new areas. No one had been before. Other ones, I didn't want to go back to town. <laughs> that was actually the truth. I just love that stuff. know? Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, it must be so peaceful, obviously with this, with this huge amount of potential danger on the one hand. But then also the the sheer peace and the just the, the difference from being in the city to be in the jungle. You, as you said, you don't have that contact and all that stress. And then you're going underwater, and again, in a way, it's peaceful. Obviously, you have very high potential danger. So it's a, just an interesting kind of um, contradiction to the way most of us live in normal society, where we're in, you know, going to the to the to the office job or whatever it is. Um, What's next then for Robbie Schmittner? I know you said that you're looking into that big um, chasm, not chasm, the uh, Hue Blocks, uh, I, I can't remember the name of it, but you said there was that thing going down to Belize. Yes, the whole bush fracture. Fracture, that's it. So you're going to be exploring that. You're also exploring to the, extend the sacactun and the Dos Ojos caves, which, is, which would be amazing because that would then be the biggest cave system in the, in the, on the planet. That will be actually, that is my next, or
1: that's what I'm working on constantly. Um, not right now because I'm forced to take a break, but um, yeah, that's that's totally my focus. And actually the two things come together, searching the whole bush fracture, which is that cave, which I do believe runs from, from Belize all the way to Cancun. And that's actually where it runs from, not the other way around. The water comes up this way and... Um, connecting sak Actun to the osh Ha cave system, which will make the biggest cave in the world. Um, that would be together, because I do think the connection will be found by staying inside that whole bush fracture. And... Looking at that or trying to find a whole Structure fracture, plus all the cave which is created by the whole fracture seeping out towards the Caribbean Ocean, that will keep me busy a lifetime, my lifetime, and there's loads of more work for more
0: generations of
1: exploration for sure.
0: Um I'm aware that we're coming up with on time. So do you, are you okay for a last cup co- a last couple of non kind of non diving questions? Do you have time? Oh, of course. Oh, of course. Okay, so we've You've, you really seem to, for, to be living the dream. Do you feel like that's true? And what advice would you give others who may wish to follow in your footsteps or fall on their feet in the way that you have? Let um,
1: things come to you. That's what I have to say, because it's like sometimes we try to chase a dream, chase a dream, and we don't get there. Because we're trying too hard. That's what I was saying. I, I, I never wanted to be the most known in, ex, explorer in the area. I don't, didn't, didn't even want to be a cave diving instructor. It just came to, me. just let it happen. Um, stay focused, do what you do, go there where your heart is. Stay on that, and success will come, I guess.
0: Uh, Is there any advice you'd give your younger self if you had the opportunity? Don't marry that bitch again. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh. Okay, (laughs) we'll leave that one there. Uh, What's the best investment you ever made, if any? (laughs) Oh. The
1: best investment? Have I ever made an investment? Well yeah well your dive business perhaps my money wise like yeah i build up a hotel and build up my dive dive center and work from here that income allows me to do my exploration so i guess that was my best investment yeah, yeah.
0: on the other hand i'm kind of broke right now <laughs> well <laughs> you're you're rich in ways that you know that's the, that's the thing we get caught in the modern day with society you know it almost is a case of everything is developed in such a way that the institutions we have are just to, to suit the, the species as a whole so we have these huge financial systems, these huge industrial systems but sometimes the individual, falls by the wayside. So life, the quality of life goes a bit down if you're working in an office. And the pinnacle is to be at that top of that skyscraper in that small little tiny flat that costs X million dollars. But actually, it's better to have no money and camp in the jungle and dive into sinkholes, or not have no money, but, you know, have a be live a life where you're not chasing that money and everything costs you so much every day. It's better to have a great quality of life and still have you know, a very good money situation rather than get dragged into these, these other industrial systems which are kind of like a honeycomb. So I think the way you're doing it is perfect. Um, now you're a member of the New York Explorers Club. You were, I think you were honored a uh, few years ago as the Explorer of the Year. What's that like? Is that something, are you, do you meet up with other explorers like Serrano Fines and some of these climbers and Antarctic explorers? Is that sort of a club where you guys keep in touch and compare notes? Um, yes.
1: Um, I'm new to the New York, new York Explorers Club. I, I got there, got there or became a member when I had found the connection of Sakatun and Dos Ojos making the biggest waterfall cave. And I've been so far once at the club giving a presentation about my work there and it was an overwhelming situation for me. It's like, wow, I'm meeting these people. It's like James Cameron is, is part of this or uh, Reinhold Messner or all these big explorers of the area. I felt a bit kind of like not in the right place. But then other people say, no, yeah, you earn it. You earn it. What you have done, you also earn it. And it's like, Okay. <laughs> I'm still getting used to that. You know, It's um. It's a really amazing environment there at that club and meeting seeing, being part of this, of like the elite of the explorers of the world. It's like, wow.
0: Great honor. It was. Well, you you, you know, you do, you absolutely deserved it. You've and I think you're gonna have to get used to it because when you find that next connection, you know, that's gonna be even more, you know, plotted and uh, you know, you're gonna be lauded again. So um is there anything that you want to talk about in terms of causes that you want to make? I know that we're coming up uh, to an hour now, so is there anything else that you want to push in terms of your website? I think it's www.RobbieSchmitner.com and your Instagram is Robbie Schmittner. I think it is, anyway. It is. Yeah. And if you people out there listening to this, please
1: have a look in there. Please follow me. Um, that will, my, You might help me doing that you might help me finding sponsors um, which can bring the exploration forward and searching more in the Holbush fracture.
0: Yeah, so any, any potential sponsors out there, uh, please do get in touch either with myself or with Robbie Schmidtner directly. Um, awesome. Well, Robbie, I have to say that was one of the most exciting uh, conversations I've had for a very long time. You're an inspiring character, and uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Good luck with it. I'm hopefully going to be out in Mexico maybe next year if this thing doesn't uh, continue, or, or if not, it, at some point the year after. Um, so hopefully maybe we can catch up then. But in the meantime, thank you so much. Very much appreciated. And yeah, keep, keep rocking. Yeah, thank you for the
1: opportunity
0: talking here on your podcast. And yeah, come over. I take you for a dive. Robbie seems to have one of the coolest jobs on the planet. There aren't a huge number of true explorers left these days who are risking their lives discovering new parts of the world but Robbie is definitely one of those and such a nice guy too so uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Anyway, thanks for listening. If you did like the podcast and you're still here please leave us a five star review on the next episode, I really would encourage you to check it out. It's an awesome one, really, really good one. We have one of the greatest British politicians in history on the podcast, and that's no exaggeration. If you have ever seen the late Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher on TV in full verbal combat in the House of Commons, the person she was addressing and giving it right and who was giving it right back to her just as fiercely or more so was the leader of the Labour Party, Neil Kinnock. He talked to me about his meeting with Fidel Castro, meeting Ronald Reagan uh, which he, who he met a couple of times on a couple of visits to the White House as uh, you know leader of the opposition and how he as Labour leader and his cabinet celebrated the night Mrs. Thatcher resigned in the face of his withering opposition he also talks about the 1992 election when he was expected to become the next Prime Minister and actually all the bookies had, had Labour and Neil Kinnock becoming the next Prime Minister right up to the night before, you may remember it that uh, that situation, or you may not. But um, check out Neil Kinnock anyway on the next episode, Lord Kinnock actually, Baron Lord Kinnock. I dare say it's really one of the best podcasts out there if you're interested in political history. So do check that out. Okay, thanks again, guys.